Why on earth do we interrupt what's usually called the, the Joseph narrative with a chapter that has absolutely nothing to do with Joseph? Right? And you can see this by comparing the end of chapter 37 to the opening of chapter 39. In verse 36 of chapter 37, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And then we start chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down from there. We could have just replaced the last verse of chapter 37 with the first verse of chapter 39 and just kept going, right? We only need this resumption because of this interruption. So there's something about it that is deliberate, something about it that's on purpose and contributes to what Moses is trying to tell us. But we may have to get a few chapters down the line before we understand why we have this interruption. But let's read chapter 38 together. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the widow's hand, he did not find her. Sorry, from the woman's hand. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. It's striking how driven by his appetites Judah seems to be. Yeah. This may be a turning point in his life at the end of the chapter, but... It's a good summary, I think. And you see similar things in his sons. A couple of elements of the text that are at a significant cultural distance from us. One is the idea of leveret marriage. We see this explained more clearly later in the Pentateuch, but it's clearly operating here. Inheritance is wrapped up with children. To whom will the inheritance go? How will your name continue? And so if a man dies without a son, he has no son to pass on the family name. And so how will the family take care of that and ensure that his name would continue? And so there's a provision in Israelite law. Again, it's explained later, but it's clearly operative already here that a man's brother would take his widow and take her as a wife, but the first son born from that union would carry on the dead brother's name. That does two things at once, actually. It continues the dead man's name so that his name's not blotted out from the tribes of Israel, right? He has an heir. His name can continue. The concern for inheritance is dealt with. But it's also a means of providing for his widow as she is taken into the household of her brother-in-law. Because without that, she has no economic means. There's no safety net. She is at the mercy of society. And there, there would be no provision for her. Here in this text, it appears that Tamar's father is willing to take her back into his household. But he might not be. Right? And she might just be turned out and left with no provision and no ability to provide for herself. And so this institution does both of those things. It cares for the widow and provides a son for the dead brother. What else do you see in the text? Or what other questions arise from it? Where else do we see Tamar's name? In the genealogy of Christ. In the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah. He's expressly mentioned. As Matthew records Jesus' genealogies, right, he mentions several women, and Tamar is the first of them. He didn't have to, right? He mentions them because they're part of the genealogy, and they're known to be among the ancestors of the line of David in particular, right? Tamar is a great-great-great-great-grandmother. Ruth is a great-grandmother. Rahab, we only find out about from Matthew. We didn't know about that otherwise. The wife of Uriah, right? Um, through whom Solomon comes. 
But Matthew didn't have to include them, but he does. And we talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago. But Tamar is the first one mentioned, and here is where we get the whole story of what happened to her. So how does that help us or make it more difficult for us to wrestle with this chapter? We're going to learn that Judah's offspring is significant, that the scepter is going to pass through Judah. So we need this chapter because people like his sons, Perez and Zerah, they're, they're the ones that survive there. So the Joseph narrative, this chapter is 37 through 50. We call it the Joseph narrative because it seems to, right, Joseph is the main character. But Judah, or things said surrounding Judah, contain several surprises for us. First is that in the previous chapter, it's Judah who says, hey, we can actually make some money off of this. And so we see that in verse 26 and 27. So in 37, 26 through 27, that's where Judah says, hey, we can make some profit off of our brother. Then we get this whole chapter that we're not sure what to do with, but seems to indicate to us that Judah's important. And notice that there's a long length of time here. We're going to resume chapter 39 exactly where we left off. So for some reason, we've told I don't know, maybe a decade's worth of story about Judah in one chapter. And then we're going to circle back to pick up where we left off about, about Joseph. There are two more surprises in relation to Judah. One is when Judah offers himself in Benjamin's place. It's not one of the others. It's Judah who speaks up. And that's in chapter 44. It was a lengthy conversation, but I'm looking for the particular verse. It's verse 33. So 44, verse 33, the whole, the whole conversation, but especially in verse 33, he kind of comes to the end of his explanation and says, take me, take me instead of Benjamin. And then the last surprise that Rose alluded to is when Jacob sits down and blesses his sons. We're expecting something special for Joseph of everything that's been said about Joseph, because of the blessing of Joseph's sons, where he crosses his arms, uh, because of the position that Joseph has arisen to. But he says of Judah, this is starting in verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Hold on. That was the core of Joseph's dream. But Jacob just said in his blessing of Judah, not Joseph, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. And then as was mentioned, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 10. Some have suggested that actually, instead of calling this section the Joseph narrative, we should call it the Judah narrative. I'm not sure about that. But what happens to Joseph serves as the backdrop that explains Judah's rise to prominence among his brothers. Joseph's dream comes true as as the family gathers around him in Egypt. And yet, it's Judah that emerges as the leader among the brothers. 
How do we see chapter 38, though, feeding into that? What does chapter 38 do for us in the, the sweep of the narrative? At moments, it feels like part of the movie they could have just left out, to keep it PG or something. Like, it's God's word, and it's inspired, and it's um, necessary, but at first glance, it's, it feels like too much, like it's too carnal. I don't know. Yeah, so it, it reminds me of a, a U.S. history class in high school, actually. My teacher thought we should watch Dances with Wolves, and he'd only seen it on TV. And so he got the, the videotape or whatever to play for our class, and he was sitting in the back grading papers. Uh, and there are things that were cut out in the TV version that weren't cut out on the videotape. So he looked up from grading papers and gave a yell and went running to the front of the classroom to try and fast forward or something. I guess he didn't have the remote. And there is a sense in which this chapter kind of feels like that. Like, oh, they probably skipped this chapter in children's Bibles. So why do we have it? It's very disorienting. I, I can't answer a lot of your questions. I can't answer any of your questions, actually. But it feels very <laughs> disorienting relative to the narrative that has been ongoing. Mm. You know, that it's just, it's there. The narrative itself, outside the fact that it's disorienting, disorienting to the overall arc of what's going on. The narrative itself in that chapter is disturbing. So you don't know what to, I don't know where to place a lot of that. You know, like Rose was saying, I mean, obviously it's there for a reason, but you know, it's not, it's not something I'm going to come up with today <laughs> in this yeah. 50 minute session. You know, it's yeah. going to take some time to chew on it. I've really never given it that much thought, frankly. I would submit to you that those places in scripture that we can't immediately say, why is this here? And that actually disturb or unsettle us are some of the most fruitful places to actually linger and consider, why is this here? What does it do? What am I supposed to learn from this, right? There's, there's no go therefore and do likewise. You can just tack on to one of the verses in this chapter. That, that doesn't work. Well, you get yourself in a lot of trouble, actually, if you tried that. And one thing that we've remarked on, actually, as we've read Genesis, is there are several places where the Lord seems to be absent, right? Some places he's clearly operative. The characters mention him. The narrator will comment. We know that God is at work. But in this chapter, I mean, we see him striking people down for their evil, but we don't, we don't see him operative beyond that, or do we? So one of the things I think this chapter does for us is it shows us the gritty reality of God's providence. Right? He's not just at work in the good times. He's not just at work in places where his activity is clearly manifest, but in the dark, God is still at work. He is still governing and directing and bringing about his good purposes. And on the really, really long view, will we see that with Tamar's incorporation into Jesus' genealogy? But even in the short term, we see that as Tamar is provided for, although not in the expected way. Judah's house is built up, although not in the expected way. 
than a tribe that could have been wiped out continues in Israel and through, not despite, Tamar. But another thing I think that this chapter does in the sweep of the Joseph narrative is it explains Judah's change in character. If we go straight from Judah trying to sell his brother to Judah offering himself in place of his brother, that doesn't make any sense at all. How, how does that come about? What has happened in Judah's life that has actually prepared us for him to demonstrate a fundamentally different character? This had to be a painful and embarrassing experience for him after he was caught. And usually the more painful the experience, the better the lesson. So, I mean, I can see where, I guess, the providence of God, I don't don't know. I mean, I feel a little weird about saying that that's the providence of God, but I guess it is. Helps to establish the character of who he eventually becomes and uses that to put him in in the grinder for a little while and let him marinate and I don't know. But I can imagine that had incredibly embarrassing. I mean, he's thinking that this was a one-time transaction and not so much. Yeah. It's also incredible. Like, it's you see when he says that she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Like, he, he's saying that this woman who prostituted herself is more righteous than he is. And that's demonstrating quite the self-awareness now of his, of his wickedness in all of it. Yeah. Could it be that he made that remark also because he had promised Tamar his son, uh, you know, when he, big what, grandson, uh, when he grew up. And yet when he grew up, he did not fulfill that promise. One thing that's very interesting The narrator never condemns Tamar. The narrator never condemns Tamar. That doesn't mean he's holding her up as uh, an example of of a godly woman. But the accent is placed on the provision for her and the the continuing of Judah's line, right? The beginning of the chapter focuses on her plight. The end of the chapter focuses on what? God accomplishes through her. The narrator never pauses to condemn her. I'm not trying to build a Christian ethic out of that, but I think that's an interesting observation. And it's good to remember that she is at the mercy of a society that has refused to provide and care for her in the midst of that. What does God bring about through this? That's not a trick question. And there's more than one right answer to that. Right? What does God bring about through or as a result of the things in this chapter? Ultimately, not to be trite, but the plan of redemption, since this would be the, you know, in the lineage of Christ, in the lineage yeah. of David, so forth. Yep. What about along the way? So we know the line that Tamar furthers culminates in the birth of the Messiah. Well, what else along the way? Sorry. What is the significance of the birth of the twins and this, like how detailed it is? That's a really good question that I don't have a really good answer for. We've seen the mention of twins before, and usually that's meant the selection of one twin over the other for the line of God's promise. But here they're both included. 
there is this struggle where one comes out first and then the other. And, and one thing that's curious about these twins is they're almost always mentioned together. Anytime we see them mentioned later, including in Matthew's genealogy, they're mentioned together, whereas other twins aren't necessarily. I love the fact that, um, you know, here again, you get a very unexpected outcome relative to how Christ gets here. You wouldn't expect him to be caught up in, you know, this. Not that he was directly caught up in this, but he uses this messy situation. And it's not perfection. It's not, you know, it's, it's the exact opposite of the way you would expect him to present himself, which I think is consistent with the way we see him you know, present himself to us today and our spiritual lives and you know, the way that he lived and, and things of that nature. So I think that, um, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't know. I just always, I like that for some reason. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what are God's works of providence? By saying God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That seems like a pretty vanilla statement until we read chapters like Genesis 38 and remember that all their actions includes this, both, both Judah and his sons and Tamar and the actions that she takes. God's governance, his directing, his disposing, his moving history toward a goal that comes to fruition in our redemption includes human sin. He is directing that toward his appointed ends. Every bit as much as he is directing other things like the weather and traffic patterns, and people's good actions toward his holy ends. It's a good reminder when, when things are rough, that other people's actions and the wickedness of the world and even the sin of God's people, like my sin, is not so powerful as to be able to derail what God has ordained to do. It's not like the... You know, what's actually not true, but what we're often told as kids so that we won't do it, right? That you put, you put pennies on the track, you can derail the train. Of course, it won't derail the train. It have to be bigger than a penny. Or something else must be going on. But sometimes we view God's work as though we are so powerful or others are so powerful that their actions could throw a spanner in the works. The training to go off the rails, mixing metaphors now. But. So through, well, despite, but also through the actions in this chapter, a tribe is built up, a woman is provided for, sons are born. Not just any tribe is built up, but the tribe of Judah, who will assume a role of prominence, from whom a king will come, who will deliver God's people from the Philistines and establish a dynasty that will continue for hundreds of years, which dynasty will eventually lead them into exile. That's true. But through which God will continue to provide for them and from which the Messiah will come. Small comfort to Tamar in the moment. She's sitting in her father's house 
wondering if she'll ever be provided for it long term. And yet God's plan included taking care of her as well. There are only, I think, two Tamars in the Old Testament. This is one. And David will have a daughter whom he names Tamar. And maybe not because she was covered up, right? So I don't know, maybe, you know, like Rose was saying, you know, it does feel kind of like a Hail Mary in a, in a football game. You know, let me see if this will work. I think another side of what we see here is the, the complexity of God's providence and the way he accomplishes so many things at once through this. I think sometimes we go through trials or temptations and then we come out the other side and we, we understand that God did this through that or this thing, but oftentimes he may be accomplishing several things at once, many of which are not even on our radar. Because through this experience, Tamar is provided for, again, sons are born. Judah's character undergoes a tremendous transformation, as well as things that take hundreds of years to develop. And to tie us back into Jacob's blessing of his sons, and the way that points to the later history of God's people, it is through, right, God uses Tamar's actions here to continue a line that will culminate in a king and then later in the king over his people. All right, a good Christmas story to get us going this morning. You have to wonder, at least I wonder, how much the story of Judah and Tamar came back in the memory of God's people as they reflected on different circumstances. Were Joseph and Mary mindful? of this story as they wondered what on earth God would do in the midst of their life with the, with the expectation of this child whose conception and birth was surrounded by scandal, Because right? who would believe Mary really? I mean, other than Joseph after the angel came, but before that he wasn't going to believe her either. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for portions of your word that leave us scratching our head and wondering. We, we pray that you would invite us to ponder over them and reflect on them at length. And we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds as we seek to understand your word, that we might see Jesus more clearly in it. We pray that you'd be with us as we continue in worship this morning, that you would receive the honor and the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ. And we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. 
We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.